Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And joining me today, as every week, is Simon Elliott, the head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. Well, we're getting to the end of July, into the uh, quiet holiday period. What's been happening in the markets this week, Simon? Well, it's been a really interesting week in the markets, actually. I mean, the headline numbers, certainly for the first four days of the week, is that the UK market was in uh, positive territory, up about 0.8%, whereas the investment companies were down about 0.4%. And that reflects a sell-off in the first few days of the week. In terms of the sector average discount, well, it narrowed in a little bit, again, for those first four days of the week, from 3.3% to 3%. But really, the kind of the big story for the markets this week is what's happened in China. And we saw uh, a sell-off in Chinese equities, which had ramifications really for global equities. And what actually happened is that the Chinese authorities basically announced that after school tutoring sector or the Chinese education companies could no longer be run on a profitable basis. Uh, and that reflected their kind of social equality drive. And this really did lead to a panic sell-off in Chinese equities, which, of course, the Chinese investment trusts were not immune. Uh, and big question marks about how committed the Chinese authorities are to capitalism and looking at the ramifications, particularly with um, a data security law to come later this year. And again, the repercussions for companies such as Alibaba and Tencent. So uh, an interesting week for the markets. And again, on Friday, as we talk at this moment, we're seeing markets sell off again. So uh, something for investors to think about. Indeed. And uh, that's always been a question mark about China. It's uh, obviously becoming a much larger proportion of the emerging markets index and therefore indirectly as in part of the global index. But on the other hand, as you say, there are these questions about uh, how committed are they to a capitalist model? We've come on to talk about the China investment trusts, but I guess the, the first point to make is that uh, there's two concerns here. One is that these particular sectors, which may be affected by the latest changes, obviously, if you're in the education sector, that's uh, going to suggest you're no longer be able to run for profit and therefore not good for investors. But also, I guess, as you said, the wider implication of whether or not regulation is going to become you know, arbitrary, or what appears to be almost arbitrary regulation, changing the goalposts might be the concern for those who are investing solely in China. Well, perhaps we could talk on, first of all, what's happened to the performance of the three listed China investment trusts? And then we can go on and talk about another interesting corporate development, which is not unrelated. Yeah, that's right. So all three investment trust companies that are focused on China at the moment have seen their share prices decline so far this year. So the weakest performer is the Bailey Giver China Growth Fund, which has done about 17% so far this year. Uh, the JP Morgan Fund is down about 13%, and that's in line with the MSCI China. And Fidelity China has actually so far uh, come through relatively unscathed, in share price terms at least, down about 3%. Funnily enough, in NAV terms, they're all much of a muchness, down about 9 to 10%, which just reflects the importance of the ratings on those respective vehicles. So they've all had a, a difficult time of it, and they've all seen sell-off so far this week. So they've all seen double-digit declines to a greater or lesser extent in the first two days of this week, although a partial recovery since then. I think it's fair to say that uh, these trusts also, though they did exceptionally well in the latter half of last year uh, and early into the early part of this year. So uh, to some extent, this is only kind of giving back some of the gains that they made, but not to say that the falls are not significant. Of course they are. Okay, so what about the uh, the discounts on these trusts? I mean, they're still actually trading quite well, as you say. Can you tell us what the numbers are around that, if if you believe the latest NAVs anyway? Well, that's right, yeah. And you've just got to be a little bit careful in volatile markets that there can be a little bit of a lag in terms of NAVs. But certainly at the close of Thursday, the numbers in front of me would suggest that Bailey Giver China Growth still on a reasonable premium, about 7% or so. Fidelity China Special Situations on about a 1% premium and the JP Morgan Fund on a slight discount, probably about 2% or so. And that compares with an average premium on that fund of about 1% over the last 12 months. So it'd be interesting to see. It was obviously a bit of a shock to the market. That's one reason why I think it, we've seen this sell-off. But obviously, we'll have to see whether it actually turns out to be a more uh, lasting uh, systemic problem for these trusts and for the Chinese equities in general. But in that context, it's uh, been an interesting week for uh, Aberdeen, 
to come out and make an announcement uh, that actually has a bearing on uh, China. Can you tell us what that is? That's right. Yeah. So at the end of the week on Friday, Aberdeen Emerging Markets and Aberdeen New Ties, so two different investment trusts, announced proposals for a merger and the adoption of an all-China mandate. There's a few bells and whistles to this. Effectively, uh, shareholders in Aberdeen Emerging Markets will be granted a 15% tender offer at a 2% discount to FAV. And similarly, uh, shareholders in Aberdeen New Tie will be offered a 15% cash exit at a 2% discount as well. But on ongoing basis, the proposal is that the merged fund uh, will be managed by Aberdeen Standard Investments' 13-strong equities team that are specialised in Chinese equities. They're based in Shanghai and Hong Kong. And the portfolio will be uh, relatively concentrated with between about 30 and 60 holdings that include smaller companies as well. And about 60% or so will be invested in the China-Asia market. So an interesting proposal. Again, they've said that as part of this, there will be a conditional 25% tender offer at a 2% discount if the fund underperforms the MSCI China All Shares Index over a five-year period to the end of 2026. And uh, the implementation of this merger is expected in the fourth quarter of this year. And interestingly enough, about 78% of the share register of uh, Aberdeen Emerging Markets have been consulted and apparently are supportive of these measures. Right. So there's a lot of interest in this particular announcement. Obviously, the timing is quite interesting. I mean, I suppose one could say that Chinese equities are going to be cheaper than they were before. That's one thing. But of course, the timing is very interesting coming in this particular week. Uh, But it's also, let's just reflect on this a bit. It's also slightly unusual, is it not, to have here we've got a merger where basically both trusts are changing their mandates. Isn't that rather kind of unusual? Normally, you have one sort of taking on another, uh, a similar-ish mandate rather than both changing their mandates. Yes, I'm sure there are, you're, you're right. It is unusual. Um, there will be precedent for it before. So um, I'm just trying to think back of an example. So the All British Assets Fund that was merged in with Aberdeen UK Tracker, I think it was a number of years ago, to give us the vehicle uh, that we've got now. But yeah, I mean, you're right. It is a relatively unusual arrangement. But According to the commentary surrounding this deal, I think both of these particular investment trusts have faced issues. So Aberdeen Emerging Markets, uh, although its performance record is highly respectable and and Andrew Lister and Bernard Moody have done, I think, a good job for investors. Unfortunately, that fund of funds approach wasn't getting traction uh, in terms of particularly the wealth managers. It's a very concentrated register and they've, they've had issues. I think we talked about this not that many weeks ago in terms of their free float. So they had to get uh, permission from the regulator to kind of keep operating with a very limited free float, only about 16% or so. So the board had said that they were looking at ideas. Equally, Aberdeen New Tide, there'd been a performance issue there. Uh, it's a smaller investment trust. I think, you know, how much demand there is for Thai equities is, is a moot point. It seems quite a specialist mandate. So these are both problem children would be one description. So to actually put them together to create a a larger, more liquid vehicle, um, address that free float issue and adopt a mandate, i.e. a Chinese equities play, would seem to make some kind of sense. And apparently both boards were looking at this as a solution. So to bring them together does make some sense. It's an interesting one. I mean, as we've discussed over the um, however many months we've been doing this podcast, I mean, there have been a number of mergers in recent times. At one stage, they were very, very unusual in themselves in the investment trust market. But we've seen a few Murray income and perpetual income and growth. And again, in the Aberdeen stable, Standard Life UK smaller companies and Dunedin smaller companies not that long ago. But I I suspect the good people at Aberdeen, Novals intended, will be looking at as a chance to create a vehicle through the merger of these two investment trusts that will have a far broader appeal uh, and one in time that uh, not only will they hope to see the discount narrow, but they'll hope to, to grow it as well. So can you give us a clue as to as the, the relative sizes of these true trusts and, and how big it might be, A, if it goes, well, obviously it looks like it's going to go through, but if it goes through, uh, and then obviously taking allowance for any investors who decide to get out through either through the tender or the cash exit? Sure. So the Aberdeen Emerging Markets has probably got assets of about 370 million or so. The new Thai fund is smaller, probably about 70 million. So if you put them together and assume that the 15% tender offers or cash exits are fully subscribed, that takes you down to about 375 million pounds or so. So, you know, a decent size vehicle. And there will be a a question mark in terms of trying to broaden out that shareholder base because there's quite a few institutional 
value-orientated shareholders on the register of both um, investment trusts at the moment. And I guess the idea will be that in time, it has a broader appeal. So wealth managers and retail investors who want exposure to China will look to, to take advantage of this particular fund. And it's worth noting as well, actually, that the, the Aberdeen Standard Investments a Chinese equities team does come with a, a good reputation. They, they run a number of mandates, not in the investment trust space, but particularly looking at the A-share market. And they have, over a number of years now, had some success in that particular market. Yes, and I noted also that uh, Aberdeen Emerging Markets already has about 30% of its portfolio in China. So it's actually slightly, I think, underweight China, but it's certainly got a significant uh, representation there. So that's interesting. I, I guess at the moment we don't have any indication as to uh, whether any of the big institutional shareholders in either that trust or their one are actually going to exit during the tender and cash offer. Presumably that would help the liquidity if they did reduce their holdings somewhat. Um, but there's no indication about that at the moment, as far as I can see. Um, well, that hasn't been stated implicitly. But if you look at the discounts on the, these two funds, just ahead of the announcement, they're both on double digits. The exit is at a 2% discount to FAV. So one would assume that for any rational investor that that might offer um, an attractive uplift on their valuation. If you think that they're currently holding the position at a 13% discount or so and they can exit at a 2% discount, there is a natural uplift there. So I suppose you could also say that if they hope that this trust is going to trade in the same way as the other Chinese trusts, which are still, as you say, around par or at a premium, I guess that would be another factor. But uh, let's see how that goes. Okay, very interesting development. So let's move on and talk about another interesting development. This is at uh, BlackRock North American Income Trust. We talked about that recently. They're trying to change their mandate. And uh, what was the outcome of that uh, particular proposal? Well, they got a big thumbs up from their shareholders, basically. 99.4% of votes were cast in favour at a general meeting on the 29th of July. Um, therefore, the fund will change its name to BlackRock Sustainable American Income Trust and the ticker to BRSA. And that was expected to become effective around about today, actually. So just to remind people, these proposals came out about a month or so ago. But the idea is that this investment trust retains its focus on North American equities with that value and dividend paying stocks. But it would be subject to uh, a screen. It's basically looking for companies with what's described as sustainable business models and it was screened as per BlackRock's baseline screen policy, and that excludes certain companies. So you'll end up with a much more focused portfolio between 30 and 60 holdings of large and mid-caps, and, and clearly shareholders are all in favour of this one. Obviously, this news has gone through now, but has this had any material impact on the discount, these proposals, and the way that it's now been accepted? Has it moved in at all? So it's trading, or it certainly was at the close of Thursday, on about a 7% discount. That compares with an average of about 4.5% over the previous 12 months. So still probably early days, I think it would be fair to say. Okay, so we'll move on and talk about some fundraising. There has been some more fundraising news this week. We knew last week that there are a number of proposed issues in the pipeline, and we can see how they've worked out. Let's start out with Hydrogen One Capital Growth, H-G-E-N. So they raised £107 million through their IPO, uh, and that will give them net proceeds just over £105 million. So that compares with a target of £250 million, but they still got it away. They're up and running. Uh, and in fact, they started trading on Friday the, um, at the end of the week. So basically, uh, the idea is that um, it's investing in a wide range of companies with um, some involvement in hydrogen, 90% of the, the holdings will be an unquoted company, so private companies. And basically, the, the chairman of this fund commented that Hydrogen One is very much for energy investors who want to move beyond net zero now, not later, and also deploy substantial growth capital into solutions underpinning the energy transition. So still very early days, literally, it's only been trading a few hours as we record this, but up and running. I suppose you'd have to say this is obviously relatively disappointing. They they hit their minimum target, but didn't get their maximum target. And that was despite having a uh, quite significant cornerstone investor in, in the shape of uh, Ineos. But um, as you say, they've got it away. And uh, I guess it will just take time for people to have a look at what they do and how it progresses. Would that be a fair summary? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's always interesting, actually, looking at the first day trades of these companies when they launch. And when on the rare occasions when an investment trust company is very oversubscribed, then, then sometimes they can move to quite big premiums. And then on other occasions where perhaps 
arms have been bent a little bit, favours have been called in, then sometimes you can see the share price be a little bit soggy on day one. In this particular instance, and bearing in mind, it's literally only been trading a few hours as we talk about this, uh, it's kind of bounced between 102p down to 99.5p and back up to positive territory, 105p. So it's obviously so, so early days, but uh, they're up and running and that's the main thing. Yeah, so no clear message out of that yet, but uh, as you say, they're, they're on their way. It will be interesting one to watch. Gives uh, you another option if you're interested in uh, energy transition. So let's move on and talk about uh, another trust which has been looking to raise more money, and that is Taylor Maritime Investments, which is in the shipping business, ticker TMI and TMIP. How did they get on? Yeah, they did well, actually. They raised an additional $75 million. Um, that was through the issuance of 65 million new shares at a price of $1.15 per share. That placing was actually oversubscribed, and uh, obviously they had to have a scaling back exercise. But the new shares began trading on Wednesday of uh, this week, and that increases the, the total number of shares and issued to just short of 328 million. But the proceeds will be used to acquire up to six handy size vessels. Uh, and just to remind people who are less familiar with the term handy size, that apparently represents a smaller bulk carriers with a span up to about 60,000 tons. But it's basically those that are small enough to get into ports. But uh, you're right, this one only came to the market back in May when it raised £180 million, so already pushing on. Yes, and the shares are obviously uh, much in demand, so presumably they're trading at a premium now. Absolutely, yeah. So at the close of Thursday, um, we had them at $1.18, which represented about a 20% premium to their um, initial NAV of $0.98. So that's a very good start for them. Let's move on and talk about uh, Tufton Oceanic Assets, SHIP, S-H-I-P, which is in a similar sort of business. It's also emerging a kind of shipping subsector in the universe. And uh, what are they hoping to do? They're trying to cash in on the same uh, popularity of Taylor Maritime, I imagine. Well, they're looking to raise equity and to invest in a pipeline of second-hand vessels. They've proposed a tap issuance of about 10.5 million new shares, uh, which represents just short of 4% of the shares in issue. That's expected to close on the 6th of August, uh, with those new shares beginning trading on the 11th of August. And the issue price is $1.18, and that represents a 4% premium to their NAV at the end of June. But yes, uh, the last time they came back to the market was in March of this year, and they um, tapped out about 15 million shares at $0.98 cents per share. So again, you can see how the, the share price is moving on for this one as well. So that's still a relatively modest small issue, but uh, still progressing in the right direction. Let's move on and talk about uh, some results now. Let's start off with the granddaddy of them all, FNC Investment Trust, FCIT, and they've had some interims. That's right, interim results for the six months to the end of June. Uh, in that time, they generated an NAV total return of 12.3%. That compared with a rise of 11.1% for the FTSE All World Index. In share price terms, not quite as good, actually. The share price total return was up 8.3%. Uh, as the fund's discount widened from 5.5% to uh, nearer to 9%. But uh, making progress in terms of the investment portfolio, the investment portfolio was up about 10.7%. Um, their North American holdings did particularly well, up 14%. And also um, their private equity exposure also did well for them in this period. That was up 14.2%. Also being geared, their gearing level was about 8.8% at the end of June. That also contributed positively as well, adding about 1.2% to performance. But um, yes, it was a solid set of results for the world's oldest investment trust, 1868, a date tattooed on the heart of any investment trust analyst. But Paul Niven uh, gave an update on his outlook for the world. And uh, he's pretty optimistic at the moment, actually. He believes that growth rates in the global economy and actually for corporate earnings are likely to exceed many of the most optimistic forecasts for uh, 2021. He's obviously keeping an eye on inflation, as we all are. Um, but that's probably explains the, the gearing level about 9% or so at the moment. Yes, I think that's relatively high, but historic standards for F&C Investment Trust. And um, you're not expecting this trust ever to shoot the lights out. It's steady as it goes. It's not really its function, but a, a reasonable uh, performance, as you say. How is it trading in terms of a discount? It sometimes trades at par, but mostly trades at a small discount. Is that right? 
Yeah, it has been derated, actually, which is probably one of the disappointing aspects of, of these results. And, and you're right. I mean, if you go back to the year, a couple of years ago, the 150th anniversary of its launch, it saw uh, it was trading on a premium through much of that year, is my recollection. Clearly, last year, in common with most investment trusts, to be fair, it got derated in that market sell-off. And then again, in this six-month period, it's just its discounts widened out a little bit. So that's obviously a headwind for its share price performance. And as I say, probably a little bit of a disappointment, but they have bought back shares historically on an opportunistic basis. And certainly they do keep an eye on that. And as they do keep an eye on, on the dividend side of it as well. And um, they made it clear in these results that the board is committed uh, to a further increase in the total dividend for the year. And that would represent its 51st consecutive uh, increase. Indeed, which is a, not a poor record at all. Let's move on and talk about Scottish American Investment Trust, S-A-I-N, which is in the global equity income sector. What have they had to say? So they announced interim results for the six months to the end of June. Their NAV total return was up 11.3% in that period. And that was more or less in line with their benchmark. Their benchmark, I think, was up about 11.4%. In share price terms, not quite as good again, actually, up 7.2%. And that was a reflection of the fact that their premium rating eroded a little bit. So they remain on a premium, but they just came down a little But in terms of what worked for them, um, well, the global equity portfolio, that was up about 11% or so. Um, But their property portfolio, which is a much smaller part of the whole fund, did rather well in the period. It was up 12.9%. And that's essentially UK property. It's not managed by the people at Bailey Gifford. It's actually a specialist property manager responsible for that. But that portfolio did well on the back of a sale of a data centre in Milton Keynes at a 46% premium to book value. The dividend is an important aspect of this story, and the dividends over the period came in at 6.125p, and that was up from 6p in the equivalent period in 2020. And in fact, revenue per share was up quite quite decently as well, up from 6.09p to 6.74p. So moving in the right direction in terms of revenue per share and dividend. So in that sector, the global equity income sector, it still is, uh, I think, lagging some of its peer group in terms of the yield. Uh, but on the other hand, it is trading at a at around par at a small premium. So, uh, what can you tell us about uh, those uh, performance metrics? Essentially, you're right in terms of the yield. Um, Saints, as Scottish American is also known as, has a yield of about two point four percent. That compares to an average of three and a half percent for that global equity income peer group. Okay, so let's move on and, and come back into the UK, where there have been some uh, interesting results as well. Let's kick off with Aberforth Smaller Companies Trust, ASL, well known as, uh, I think, what we call deep value investors. Did very well when the value cyclical rally began in the autumn last year. But what are their latest results got to show? Yeah, so a good set of results for the six months to the end of June. NAV total return up 33.5%, and that compares with a rise of 17.4% for this particular fund's benchmark. In share price terms, not quite as good, actually, but still in decent uh, positive territory, up 24.9%. And that's just a reflection of the fact the discount widened from about 3.5% to nearer to 10. So um, they made the comment that this is the second strongest interim result in the fund's 30-year history. And uh, if you read the investment manager's commentary, they put it down to their value approach, as you mentioned, and also the portfolio's Britishness, which I've never seen attributed as a, as a reason for outperformance before. But they're making the point that obviously UK domestically focused companies did rather well in this period. Portfolio turnover in this six-month period was, came in about 30%, which is probably a little bit higher than you might expect from, from Aberforth. But uh, it's an interesting portfolio around 70 holdings and clearly benefited from the change in their mood music, particularly with regard to the UK market. We've also heard from the Aberforth Split Level Income Trust, which is managed by the same team, obviously, but is operating on a slightly different uh, cycle. That's ASIT. Uh, perhaps you could just uh, explain uh, what this trust does and how it uh, differs from the other trusts that uh, Aberforth have and what they've reported. Yeah, so there's a couple of differences, but the key one is the level of gearing. So Aberforth Smaller Companies Trust um, is a decent sized company. It's probably got a market cap of about $1.4 billion, not too far off. Um, But the gearing is relatively modest. In fact, I think they made the comment in the latest results that they just used gearing for the fourth time in the 30-year history of this fund, and it was about 5% geared or so at the end of June. It's used on a tactical uh, basis. Aberforth Split Level Income Trust 
is structurally geared. So it has a zero dividend preference share. So again, at the end of June, gearing was probably equivalent to about 29% of net assets. And that is reflected in its results. So a very strong uh, set of results for Aberforth split level income. They had the annual results for the year to the end of June. Uh, NAV total return up 94% uh, for the ordinary shares in that time. And that compares to a rise of uh, just short of 50% for the benchmark. Obviously, the ZDPs were up much more modestly, about 3.6%. Um, in ordinary share price terms, uh, the return was nearly uh, 98% as the discount narrowed in a little bit. But yeah, it's a, it's a much smaller vehicle. It's uh, about 165 million uh, market cap, and it has a yield as well. Its yield is about 4.2% uh, at the moment, and that reflects that structural gearing. So obviously, the fact that the share price return has been less than the NAV total return over the interim period for Aberforth smaller companies. And that means the discount, as you say, must have widened. Uh, why do you think that is? Is there any particular reason for that? Um, why has it widened? I mean, it, I've got it on an 11% discount at the moment. That compares to an average of 8.5% over the previous 12 months. I think what we saw at the start of this year, because obviously it's the snapshot, if you, if you turn the clock back to the start of this year, I think we had seen that kind of vaccine rally bounce. I think the UK was coming back into favour. I think there was a move towards more value-orientated strategies and, and Aberforth is one of the best examples of that. And and through that period, through that first quarter of the year, it would have seen a much tighter discount. I think since then, and particularly over the last few months, we have seen ratings kind of widen out a little bit. And I suspect that Aberforth smaller companies have just seen a bit of a rotation away. So at the moment, its discount is wider than its 12-month average. But just during that time, it's been as narrow as 0.4%. It's been as wide as 17%. So quite a lot of discount volatility in this one. Okay, so we want to talk about another trust which is involved in smaller companies to some extent, and that is BlackRock's Throgmorton Trust, THRG, which has certainly had a terrific uh, time over the last uh, few years, performed very well, trades at a premium or has traded at a premium. Uh, they've had some results out, and what have they uh, had to report? They had interim results out for the six months to the end of May. And again, not a bad set of results, actually. The NAV total return was up 31%. That compared with a rise of 27.7% for its benchmark. In share price terms, up about 32%, uh, just as that premium kind of widened uh, a little. But I, I think the thing to note here, you know, we talked about Aberforth and we talked about its well-structured value uh, investment approach. In the case of BlackRock Frogmorton Trust, which is run by a chap called Dan Whitestone, it has very clearly an implicit growth style. Now, as mentioned, value has outperformed growth, or it certainly did in that period, uh, that six-month period. And yet, BlackRock, Rob Morton Trust still managed to outperform in its own right. So that's not what you necessarily expect. And in the investment manager's report, he, he made it clear that this is actually just down to the underlying holdings. It's quite a diversified portfolio, actually, about 130 or so long holdings. And it's worth noting that this can actually hold a few shorts as well, so where it sells positions that it doesn't own. But in terms of its long holdings, um, it's things like Impacts Asset Management that we know from uh, the Impacts Investment Trust, companies such as Watches of Scotland, IMI, Mobile and Scarpa as well. So uh, basically, he got the, the stock selection right in that period and, and hence the outperformance. And has it managed to uh, retain its premium rating? Yes, is the answer. We've got it on a, about a 2.5% premium uh, at the moment. As you say, it has a very strong long-term performance record. It has been able to issue new shares and it has uh, attracted a strong retail following and hence that uh, rating has held up. And that's in contrast to most of the other trusts in the sector, which are still trading on uh, often quite wide discounts, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, that's correct. So um, the average discount in the UK smaller companies space is probably somewhere about 9%, but you're, you're right, there's quite a range there. So Throgmorton Trust on, on a premium rating, uh, you've got a DCN Investment Trust that we talked about a few times, that's on a small premium as well. But then you kind of go down the rating scale and you can find double digit uh, discounts, uh, strategic equity capital on a 16% discount. I think it's one we talked about, Aberforth, obviously 11, and then you kind of get out to the more special sits, uh, you know, Marwin Value on 35%, Chris Lamber on a 20% discount. So there is quite a range in that uh, in that subsector. Now let's talk about uh, Law Debenture, LWDB, which is a very different animal. Uh, let's talk about that. They've had some results out. They have. They had interim results out for the six months to the end of June. In that time, they recorded an NAV total return of 16.7% uh, with debt at par or 19.4% with debt at fair. And we might come back to explain what that means. 
But both those numbers, frankly, uh, represented an outperformance of the FTSE All Share, which, which was up 11.1% in the first six months of the year. Share price, total return, uh, not quite as spectacular, actually, uh, up 10.9%. But just to remind people, it is a slightly different uh, investment trust, this one. Effectively, there are two legs to this one. You've got um, what's known as the independent professional services business, and this is a, an operating business that specialises in things such as um, trustee services, pensions businesses, and corporate services. And, and that side of the business is going well, actually. They saw revenue and profit before tax growth up about 18% and 6% respectively in that six-month period. And in fact, that business, effectively, it's a subsidiary of the, of the investment trust, that uh, saw its value increase by 10% to about £150 million. And that represents 16% of net assets. The rest of the net assets uh, is in an investment portfolio. It's run by James Henderson and Laura Fall of Janice Henderson. And that actually performed well in the period as well. So I think we know James Henderson and Laura Fall from, uh, they're involved in a number of investment trusts actually, but Lowland uh, Investment Company and Henderson Opportunities, they, they are responsible for both of those. Um, but they have a kind of more value style and uh, certainly the shift to value this year has benefited their returns. Uh, and so you can see that in the way the Lord Deventure Investment Portfolio has performed. But uh, an important part of Law Debs is the dividend. And the results made it clear that the 2021 dividend will be increased from the 2020 level of 27 spot 5p. Uh, and in fact, revenue per share, I mean, as a rough rule of thumb, about a third of it also comes from the independent professional services business and the rest from the investment portfolio. And both legs, again, are showing an increase in revenue per share. So I guess that puts the board in a, in a strong position when they can promise uh, an increase in the dividend for the full year. Well, you threatened to uh, explain to us uh, again the difference between uh, NAV with debt at par and NAV with debt at fair value. So here's your chance, Simon, to give us another quick tutorial on this subject. Oh my goodness, you're too kind. Uh, well, debt at par. So the idea is that when you issue a long-term debt, it has a nominal value. That's effectively the value at which it gets repaid in time. Um, and there are kind of different ways that you can account for that. You can either leave it as just the amount to be repaid at some point in the future, or you can attempt to revalue that debt on a fair value basis. And that's comparing the length of the debt or the, how long it's in issuance for and the cost of the debt and compare it with those readily available, those tradable, uh, and you effectively you give a fair value or try to price it to the market. Um, and so that has an implication to the NAV. It's always a moot point which one people should take. I think the industry standard is to look at debt at fair, but then you know there is also an argument that that doesn't really reflect what the investment manager is actually doing. It's more an accounting treatment, and ultimately the thing, all being well, should get repaid at nominal value. But therefore, just to follow that through, if, if we said, as in this case, the NAV total return uh, was 16.7% with debt at par and 19.4% with debt at fair, uh, what is the implication of that? That The implication of that for the value of the, of the debt? So the idea is, A, that they have got some long-term debt in operation. And clearly, given the way that we've seen interest rates move or kind of bond markets more to the point move in the first six months of this year, that's had implications for the the way their long-term debt has been valued. So that's what that's suggesting. Okay, let's move on and talk about uh, a specialist trust now. This is BlackRock Energy and Resources Income, BERI, which is, uh, I think, uh, not so long ago, as I recall, adjusted its mandate. And uh, they've had some results too, Simon. Tell us about that. They have. They've had interim results for the six months to the end of March, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 27.3%. That compares with the EMIX Global Mining Index of 27.6% of the MSCI World Energy Index of 16.7% and the S&P Global Clean Energy Index, which is actually down in the period of about 8.6%. In share price terms, uh, they did even better, actually up 46.9% as the shares moved from a 12% discount to a 2% premium. And it's worth just noting, what does any investment trust, frankly, need three comparative uh, benchmarks or indices to compare its performance? Well, actually, it's a reflection of the fact that this particular investment trust has kind of changed, as you <laughs> correctly alluded to, changed its mandate, and it changed it back in March last year, which was probably at a period where most people had better things to think about. But effectively, it introduced this focus on sustainable energy, 
So if you actually look at where the portfolio is now, about 30% or so is exposed to what they describe as energy transition stocks and decarbonisation of the energy supply chain. Uh, and that's as at the end of May. And then the rest is in probably more traditional mining and traditional energy allocations. And it was that that actually drove the performance uh, so far this year, with the solar and wind stocks uh, falling between about 10 and 40%. But a, a really interesting mandate, the revenue earnings per share uh, came in at 2 spot 0.7p. That was up 11% period on period. And actually dividends totaling 2p per share were declared and that's in line with the first half of last year and in line with the annual target of 4p per share. So 4p per share, what does that translate to in terms of a potential yield? Yeah, 4.4% actually. I've got the share price on about 90.5p at the moment, so it comes in at 4.5%. Splendid. Okay, so well, we heard about those uh, solar and wind stocks falling in the BlackRock Energy and Resources Income Portfolio. So what's been happening at Greencoat UK Wind, which obviously, as we know, is specialising in wind power? They've had their latest interims. How did they get on? They had interim results for the six-month period to the end of June, and their NAV was up from 120.2p uh, to 125.spot 2p. So um, when you factor in the, the, the dividend, which came in about 3.spot 59p, that equates to a total return for that period of about 5.4%. So the increase in the NAV, that basically reflects the increase in forward power prices uh, for 2021 to 2024. So basically, the NAV effectively reflects a number of factors. Um, power prices is an important element of them. Um, and in fact, that was uh, quite well timed because in terms of what went on in terms of the wind generation, that actually that was 20% below budget during that six-month period. And that was a reflection of low wind resource, uh, although obviously higher power prices overall negated that impact a little bit. So dividends paid during the period were one and a half times covered. And in fact, the full year cover forecast is expected to be about 1.7 times. And, you know, as we've discussed before, this one continues to raise additional capital. 198 million was raised in the, in the period. And that's been uh, deployed in a number of different wind farms uh, across the UK. And I think net generating capacity now is coming in at 1,209 megawatts. Okay, so it's doing well in terms of generating income for the dividend. But, um, I mean, if the NAV is increasingly reliant on forward power prices, are these power prices that they've actually locked in? Or is it just a a forecast about what's going to happen to power prices over that period, if I was being a sceptical observer here? It's a mixture, is the answer. So there's an element of this that effectively is still subsidies. And that reflects the fact that this um, investment company has been running a number of years now. So there's still within the revenue that it generates, there's an element that they have very good visibility on it because some of it is based on subsidies. There is an element that is reliant on energy prices. And obviously, they have to look in terms of what people are predicting in terms of future energy prices. Um, And that's true of all those renewable energy infrastructure uh, funds as well, it's worth noting. And it will vary from fund to fund how much exposure they've got to that kind of future energy price. But that is one of the kind of the risks with these particular funds. If you believe that energy prices are going to come down significantly uh, in the years to come, then that will have a direct impact on the NAVs. Um, Clearly, if you think the reverse is true, then that should give, uh, if you pardon the pun, a a strong following wind. And so in general, these renewable energy investment trusts, they've had a bit of a derating recently, or at least until quite recently. And uh, is that the case here as well? I mean, it used to trade on a, a bigger premium than it does now. Am I right about that? Yeah, I, I think you're right in terms of the whole sector. I think you're spot on. I mean, Greencoat UK Wind, I've got it on a 9% premium or so at the moment. That compares with an average of about 10.5% over the previous 12 months. But, you know, we have seen it up as high as 20%, 24%, though that's probably relatively fleeting. But yeah, we have seen the premiums contracted. I think we've talked about that on, on a number of occasions. But, you know, historically for an investment company to, to trade on a 9 10% premium is still um, pretty strong. What it enables companies like Greencoat UK Wind to do is to come back to the marketplace and raise additional capital as and when is appropriate. So let's move on and talk about Hickel Infrastructure, HICL. They've had some uh, update as well. What have they been saying? So Hickel Infrastructure announced what well, it was an interim update statement for the period from the 1st of April to the 27th of July. Um, so it's a kind of three, four month period and provided some good visibility in terms of what was actually going on. So 71% of the portfolio is in PPP investments. That's public private partnerships. They are apparently performing in line with expectations. 
demand-based investments, uh, which have more economic sensitivity, and that includes things like toll roads, um, they are recovering in line with forecast. Obviously, they will have been hit um, by the pandemic. They also um, gave a bit of insight, a bit of colour into high-speed one and what was going on there. I mean, clearly, there's a few things needed to sort out. Domestic train path bookings pre-booked until May 2022 are at reduced levels and almost entirely supported by an underpin from the Department for Transport. International train paths are currently running at about 15% of pre-COVID levels, though apparently that's in line with the manager's uh, expectations. But you know, clearly it's still very difficult to have exposure to those type of assets at the moment for very obvious reasons. Apparently discussions with key stakeholders, in particular project leaders, remain ongoing and constructive. But in terms of the dividend uh, on Hickel and the guidance, they gave a guidance of 8.25p for their financial year for 2022. That was reaffirmed and that is expected to be fully cash covered. Basically, the manager noted that demand for core infrastructure projects still remains very, very strong. And there was some talk about maybe downward pressure on discount rates. Or why is that important? Because when you see discount rates fall, that in theory should lead to a rise in in valuation. So, um, that was uh, an interesting point to note. So as with the renewable energy trusts, there's a, two conflicting forces here. One is what's the outlook for economic growth, which would normally be positive for growth. And what is the uh, outlook for interest rates? If growth disappoints, then you would expect interest rates to come down and so on. So there's a bit of countervailing uh, benefit there. What about Oakley Capital Investments, OCI? Very different kind of uh, business, but what have they had to say? So Oakley Capital Investments, they provided a trading update for the six months to the end of June. Basically, their NAV total return was up about 11% in that six-month period. And again, you know, they've been quite busy. They've seen investments total £95 million, uh, while proceeds generated came in about £51 million. So they were sitting on cash of £172 million at the end of June. That represented 21% of net assets, although they do have outstanding commitments coming in at 438 million. So they are, would expect to deploy a lot of capital over the next uh, two to three years. But essentially, Oakley Capital remained focused on um, three key sectors, so technology, consumer and education. Uh, in terms of their portfolio, about 52% of net assets, that's 14 portfolio companies, saw a growth in revenues uh, at or above expectations in the period. Four have been modestly impacted uh, from the pandemic, but three, which represent 29%, of net assets continue to be significantly impacted by COVID-19 restrictions. And one would assume, although they didn't provide the detail, that would include businesses such as Time Out, which has been a long-standing holding in the portfolio. I think I saw mentioned that they are also discussing possible ways of uh, reducing the discount on this trust, perhaps by buying back shares, which is often not something you see in the private equity sector historically. Uh, is that correct, Simon? Yeah, I mean, I think Oakley Capital Investments has had a, a lower profile than some of its other private equity peers um, over the long term. Though in recent years, they've been seeking to address that and they've become more uh, investor friendly, I think would be one way to describe that. And in fact, you have seen the discount march in uh, quite a bit. So I've got them on about a 14% discount at present. That compares with an average discount of 25% over the previous 12 months. You can see it is quite a lot narrower um, although there has been some discount volatility, clearly. But the average discount on the kind of private equity peer group, it does vary quite a lot, actually, but um, probably about 7 or 8% at the moment. So we've still got some way to go in that respect. OK, let's move on and talk about Premier Might and Global Renewables, uh, PMGR, another one that does pretty much what it says on the tin. What are their latest results had to show? So they announced interim results for the six months to the end of June, in which time they generated a, an ordinary share and they total return of 4.9%. Uh, their portfolio return of 4.2% was amplified by the capital structure. They've got a, a zero in place uh, and that provided gearing of about 31% at the end of June. So just to kind of put some perspective on that, their performance compares with a rise of 6% for the FTSE Global Core Infrastructure Index and a fall of 16.8% for the S&P Clean Energy Index. So again, I think we've talked about this one, how it's kind of changed its focus, looking at renewable energy and sustainable infrastructure. And there was some description over the drivers for that particular space. Let's move on. We've got another crop of uh, NAV announcements from commercial property trusts. 
I don't think we need to go through them all. Again, as before, we might just pick out one or two of these uh, and then just look at the general overall picture. Uh, let's start off though with um, BMO Commercial Property Trust, uh, BCPT, uh, and we've also got BMO Real Estate Investments, BREY. And these two have been the ones that went out to perhaps the widest discounts, as I recall, after the uh, pandemic shutdown. Can you quickly summarise their uh, latest uh, updates, Simon? Yeah, so these are Q2 updates. So basically looking at the three-month period to the end of June, uh, and both have a positive story to tell. So BMO Commercial Property had an NAV total return of about 5.3%. In share price terms, though, it had a spectacular return up 29.6%. Just bearing in mind that was a three-month period. BMO Real Estate Investments, uh, not dissimilar in terms of NAV terms, up about 3.9%. And the story is, as you might expect, quite similar. So performance driven by industrial and logistics. That's true for both those investment companies. And in terms of the rent collection as well, then again, not dissimilar levels. So for BMO Commercial Property Trust, the rent collection for Q2 is coming in about 90%. Uh, and the equivalent number for BMO Real Estate is in about uh, 96%. So BMO Commercial Property Trust has um, a higher exposure to retail and clearly that's a more uh, problematic area. But in terms of BMO Commercial Property Trust, their monthly dividends are coming in at about 0.35p per share. Oh, sorry, that was paid uh, during the quarter, I should say. And uh, the board is going to keep that level of dividends under review, but expects to maintain the monthly rate for the foreseeable future. So that sounds, uh, as you say, reasonably positive. And we've talked about how the property sector has been popular or more popular in the, in the last few months, coming back from big discounts before. Let's also just mention Custodian REIT because that is slightly unusual and it's one of the trusts that trades at around par or sometimes even at a premium. What's their latest announcement been? So again, Q2 results uh, in which time they had an NAV total return of 6%, which is a pretty decent number for a three-month period. And again, the portfolio valued at $575 million. Uh, the valuation increase came from asset management and increases in the industrial sector. So again, that's a, a theme we heard with the BMO funds. Uh, and in terms of the rent collection, that was coming in at 95% for the quarter, uh, albeit adjusted for contractual rent deferrals. Okay, so we might just then pick out a couple of other specialist ones because they're always slightly different and slightly more differentiated in some way. Let's talk about Impact Healthcare REIT, IHR. What's their update been? Yeah, so again, for that Q2 period, they had an NAV total return of 1.6%. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, their rent collection came in at 100% for the quarter. Um, they raised some additional capital. I think we've talked about that one before. They raised $35 million. And uh, in terms of the, the dividend, the dividend of one spot 6025p, that was declared in respective period. And that's in line with their annual dividend target of 6 spot 41p per share. We might also just briefly pick out uh, GCP Student Living Digs because this is a, uh, a trust that's been the subject of a cash offer, but they have actually put out some results. So does that uh, enlighten us any further? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we got an insight into this. If you remember with the announcement when the board basically uh, recommending the, the offer that they'd received, that they had had a very good second quarter. And now we've got a bit more colour around that. So basically, the NAV or the EPRA NTA, I should say, was up 8.9% in that second quarter. And basically, that reflected a valuation increase of 6.8%. And apparently driven by very strong investment demand for private student accommodation in, in the core London market, which has led to a yield compression. And uh, in addition to that, I think there's expectation of higher rents in the 2021-22 academic year. Not good news if you're sending off any children to university during that time. But Interestingly, the, the insight they give onto this, the bookings for the 2021-22 academic year is currently at about 42%, and that compares with 83% at the same point in 2019. So it would still suggest that student accommodation still has some way to go to get back to normality. Though they did comment that the, the fund anticipates the 21-22 booking season being condensed and back-ended. Uh, which does kind of make some sense. As you mentioned, they have received that uh, recommended uh, cash offer. And as a result of that, the quarterly dividend has been suspended until further notice. OK, so uh, I think we'll call it into that particular sector of the podcast at this point. And we're going to finish off this week by uh, talking about an announcement that affects the 
AIC, the Association of Investment Companies, the trade body which provides uh, you know, a lot of statistics for the sector and uh, lobbies on its behalf when there are issues uh, to deal with. And uh, there is some news from the AIC, which is that it now has a new boss or a new man to run the AIC. Uh, perhaps you can uh, tell us something about that, Simon. Yeah, that's right. So they announced this week that uh, a gentleman called Richard Stone would replace Ian Sayers as the chief executive of the AIC. Ian's going to stand down in October. And I think, uh, as we commented earlier this year when the news broke, that Ian was looking to take a step back. He's been there for a considerable period of time, I think possibly I've got 20 years in, in my mind and a large portion of that as the chief executive. And I think certainly during his tenure, the AIC uh, has done a good job for the industry on a number of fronts, both in terms of creating interest in the sector and also addressing some of the technical issues that the investment company sector has faced. So Richard Stone, I think, has probably got some big shoes to fill, though, interesting enough, his background um, he was previously the chief executive of effectively the Share Center uh, platform, which was actually, I think, sold to Interactive Investor last year. So, but clearly has a huge amount of experience of retail platforms. And I think that's an, an, a very interesting development uh, in terms of the whole sector. So it would be interesting to meet him and uh, hear his views uh, in the months and years ahead. Yes, I think it's fair to say I did actually meet uh, Richard Stone last year in connection with another matter altogether when he was still at the Share Center. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what he does. But it, obviously, clearly, his experience with platforms, given how demand from private investors is increasing for investment trusts, and uh, there's a lot of interest among fund management companies in finding better ways to, to reach and to communicate with uh, private investors, it'll be very interesting to see what he's uh, got to bring in that uh, particular context. So good luck to him. I, I dare say we'll be hearing from him in due course about what he's planning to do. So that's really all we have time for this week. We mentioned earlier that uh, James Henderson and Laura Foll manage uh, the equity portfolios for three investment trusts. And uh, we have an interview with Laura Foll for the Moneymaker Circle, which is going to be published next week, uh, which is very interesting, talking about the UK market. And I also had a very interesting chat this week with Harry Nimmo, the, uh, the long-serving manager of the Standard Life Smaller Companies Trust, who had some interesting things to say about the UK equity market at the moment, which is obviously a topic of great interest to a number of people at the moment. That's all we have time for. Look forward to speaking again next week, Simon, and we'll see whether this uh, fallout in the China market is going to persist or not. So that's it for now, and uh, look forward to speaking next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.